0: Juliet, Dogcast Radio. If you like dogs, wherever you are in the world, we're the show for you. Hello, and welcome to episode 224 of Dogcast Radio. At our website, dogcastradio.com, you'll find this and all our other podcasts, along with lots more. Remembrance Day is coming up next month, and in this episode, you can hear all about the War Dog program.
1: When the United States entered World War II, they had the idea that dogs could help with the war effort. But there was one fundamental problem with that, is the United States military had absolutely no dogs whatsoever. They asked the American people to donate their pets to the war effort.
0: Jason Fleming will be telling us why he supports the Mayhew.
1: What
2: I love about the Mayhew is the fact that, obviously, they do do a lot, you know, for the animal welfare, but it's also, it's that thing about if you think that there's an owner you struggling to cope, and you know, it, it, especially during lockdown.
0: Before all that, we hear from Annie Wilson, whose Bernese Mountain Dog Button is affected by elbow dysplasia. It's changed both their lives, and Annie is now campaigning to help all dogs affected by the condition, and other conditions too. Dog ownership is a privilege, not a right, and surely... We should do all we can to make our dogs' lives as happy and healthy as possible. I'm talking today to Annie Wilson. Hi, Annie. Hi.
3: Hi. Good
0: to talk to you. Good to talk to you too. So we're going to talk about a really important campaign you've started, the Paws Against Elbow Dysplasia campaign, which is you know, a force for good. But first of all, we're going to start off with talking about your dog, Button. So tell me about Button. So
3: Button is a Bernese Mountain Dog she's a really quite a big dog Yes. beautiful fluffy and beautiful she developed a limp about when she was about 7 years, 7 months old mm-hmm. and uh i got it checked out and it uh, came back as elbow dysplasia yeah which is a really it's a horrible disease it's hereditary which means it gets passed down from the through the generations um yeah and it it causes a lot of pain in their elbows, yeah, so she was really hurting a lot, oh. and uh, so she went and had some x rays and then an mRI um and she saw a, a proper um orthopedic vet, and he did the mRI we then did an arthroscopy to have a look inside the elbows, and she had a a big operation because what had happened was that the um bones in the lower half of her leg, didn't grow at the same rate. Mm. So um, one was longer than the other. So every time she walked, there was pressure on the wrong bone. So they had to cut that bone, reduce it and and, and fix it, yeah. which is horrible. So basically at the age of nine months, she had her, her arm broken, which is horrible, and then and the plate put in. So um, not only that, she had to be really restricted. So she went through a lot of pain having that, which was horrendous for yeah. her. She had to stay in the. She stayed in the vets for about five nights, I think. Oh so gosh. they, her. yeah, it was quite a long time. And I was so petrified of her coming home because I was so. It sounded such a horrible big operation. I was so scared that she, you know, she'd undo what they'd done. Yes. So made her like a little. I made a little healing pen for her, which was really sweet. And it had got like her stuffed toys in there, and it got I healing crystals around it and everything and stuff. Oh. Anyway, we got her home. She hated it. <laughs> Didn't That's want to be a... shut in there, <laughs> oh. so, so um, we uh, kind of changed that and kind of made a little contained area with the with the chairs and the settee and the lounge so that she couldn't get anywhere but we were in there with her, yes. Um, so so she had to be restricted for months and months and months, and this is a, like a nine month old puppy yes. that doesn't know that it's got to be restricted. Oh, so, so um, we put baby gates all around the house. We've got no stairs, so we haven't got to worry about that, so she couldn't go we had to stop her whizzing everywhere, so she yeah. couldn't, so we had baby gates everywhere, so if I went somewhere, I let her move with me, and then she stayed in the kitchen oh. sort of thing, that kind of thing and And we did that probably we've still got two of the baby gates up because we still can't really let her whizz around too much.
0: I just, yeah. and I mean as you say she's a big dog there's a lot of weight on her joints so it's you know it's really important I mean I was just thinking when you're talking about that we had um star Fries, who ruptured her cruciate ligament and that was difficult sort of keeping her confined for the eight weeks and but then again when if we did need to move her we could pick her up and move her it's a it's a very different thing with it was such a big dog isn't it
3: yeah yeah it, it really is so we had to the the, pri- the priority was to keep her as slim as possible
0: yeah
3: and that is always true in big dogs anyway for their joints that that, that we sh- they should all be the the overweight part is, is really bad on their joints yes um, it's really important to keep them slim so that's the priority with her. but she we she she could hop you know she hobbled around um, it was uh, yeah, it was over the winter, and we put um, one of those dry bags over her because she had a um, a plaster on her leg, so we put a dry bag over it so that she could. And she tentatively, probably a couple of weeks in, if was it that long? She started putting her weight on it. They're wow. so dogs, they're incredible. Yeah. you can see them, and they're amazing. So yeah, so she kind of just hobbled around, but she was on the lead for months and months and months she wasn't allowed off the lead because she couldn't go running around or anything so if you imagine this ball of energy a nine-month-old eight-month ten-month-old puppy that just was just allowed like two or three minutes in the garden
0: yeah
3: for months so she so so we we did loads of sniffing with her I (laughs) did like a uh, a lady came over and showed me about scenting and stuff and things so we used to put scents around the house so she could just like wander around sniffing and things just to keep her mind going
0: yeah that's that's such a brilliant thing to do though because if your dog does need to have crate rest or whatever or, or can't you know when they get older perhaps or you know like yours they can be very young and full of beans but mm. you know that scent work is really gets the nose
3: the brain working it tires them out it's a brilliant thing to know isn't it it really is, yeah. But there was a, a trainer that I, I went to years ago, and, and she said that 20 minutes of sniffing is, is like the equivalent of a two hour walk to wear them out. Yeah. And, and I remembered that and thought, well, she can't do walks, so we'll have to do sniffs. And she likes sniffing, but now she's just such a sniffy dog. She just like <laughs> takes two hours to do a 10 minute walk now, but that's okay.
0: <laughs> Bless her. Yeah, she's earned it. She deserves it. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I mean, as you say now, there's still knock-on effects now even now isn't it? And, and for the rest of her life to you know yeah. this this um, condition will affect her won't it
3: well she's on pain meds forever and like a, a, a normal dog would go for a two hour walk no problem she could perhaps she can perhaps go for an hour walk but if we met a friend to play with and she had a little play we would have to curtail the walk she she, 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 she can't you know We've got to be really mindful of the length of walks that she goes on and and how much exercise she has. But the the priority is for her to have a happy dog life. So she loves to play with other dogs. So if we can find somebody sort of her size, we just go and have a play and then come back back again. Yeah, yeah. And and that's what she loves.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, obviously, yes, she's having a happy life. You know, thankfully, she's with you. You... (laughs) You've got the operation done you've done everything you know you can to help her cope with it so she's having her you know she's living her best life isn't she bless her and she looks lovely but sadly it's not just your dog isn't it's not just your button a lot of dogs are affected by
3: elbow dysplasia aren't they yeah it's, it's a horrendous disease and it's so widespread yeah there's various different shapes and sizes of dogs that are successful it's not just big dogs little basset dogs Uh, all sorts of shapes and sizes can get elbow dysplasia and it's and it is hereditary it is all passed down through the family it it can be made more severe by too much exercise or poor diet or being overweight but but it's it's it starts with the genetics that the genes from her the elbow dysplasia genes that's got to be in there for it to develop into elbow dysplasia yeah so I mean
0: really what we need is breeders to sort of embrace this and if they've got a dog who's got the the the
3: capacity to pass that on then they stop breeding from that dog, presumably. Well, that would be the ideal. That would be the absolute ideal. I, I've done research and spoke to the International Elbow Working Group, which is a huge, you know, a, a, well, it's an international group of, of mm-hmm. research and stuff. And 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 they talk about that that if you've got a dog with elbow dysplasia and you breed from it, it doubles the chance of the offspring having it. Mm. So, and that's a huge risk to take. It's a massive risk yes. to take. But but when I talk. To, to breeders about it the problem is that they say that you can't knock out all the ones that have got elbow dysplasia from the uh, breeding pool because you're taking out too many genes there aren't enough dogs left so that gives you a, an idea of the scale of it throughout mm. certain breeds it, it's you know in Bernese's that they say that if, if we take out the ones that have have, have got elbow dysplasia you're taking out what they keep saying and i hate this phrase is you throw the baby out with the dishwater." they say that that, that the dog might be perfect in every other way so you're if and if it's got elbow and you don't breathe from it you're losing all those really good genes but to me that feels really wrong even if it's a perfect specimen in every other way if you if you've got a, a, a double the chance of spreading it yeah, I, I I really can't see that, that that's the right thing to do, but that that's what they do. <laughs> mm. So I guess as well then, if
0: if, if breeders sort of, I, I guess some will, some are embracing it, but some oh, yeah, won't. You know, absolutely. And,
3: there's some that really, really they would not breed with something that got elbow dysplasia or the severe form of elbow dysplasia. Yeah,
0: yeah. But I mean, you know, from their point of view, you can you can you can see if if not if not um, condone, you know, you can, you can understand what they're saying from their point of view. It may it may you may think it's, it's wrong. And you know, that's obviously, if you see the dog suffering, then you think, yeah, actually this is wrong. and mm. We shouldn't be allowing this. Um, but the other thing we need to do then is if, if people are going to go and buy a puppy and talk, any, any breed, you need to know the health tests that you should be seeing done. And you should know what is a healthy, score what's an acceptable score in the parents in the dog that you're buying so that you know you're not condoning you're not you know sort of patronizing breeders that don't hold up
3: the standards that you would wish to be held up don't you absolutely yeah it's so important that you check that the parents are health checked and, and what we found during this campaign that we've set up is that there's so many dogs that aren't health checked Even kennel club registered ones. And that's the frightening Mm. thing. The assumption there that a kennel club registered dog is healthy. But when you look into it further, there's thousands of litters registered with the kennel club whose parents haven't been health checked for elbow and hip dysplasia, which are the ones that I've mainly looked into. But there's a lot of other hereditary diseases that the kennel club suggests dogs are tested for. But there's so many not. And that's why it feels really important that, that 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 there's some kind of system that ensures that all dog breeding dogs are health tested so
0: but why why would the kennel club allow this to happen if if we know you know you and I sitting here know this is a problem why doesn't the kennel club know this is a problem why are they letting this
3: go on well i asked them i i, I wrote to them and and they and they said that if they enforced health testing then uh people or breeders or whatever would go elsewhere, they wouldn't register with a kennel club. And and and, and they said, oh that and then we can't influence them, which seemed a bit weird. <laughs> <laughs> You're not in them we if can't. they're not health testing. So what, I know. what I actually I, I looked into their into their um accounts and found out that they, they received eleven million pounds for dog registration last year. Wow and I thought well wow. Is that anything to do with it? Mm. I'm not saying it is, but is it? Yeah. If, if there's such a large quantity of dogs that aren't health checked, and if they didn't register them, their income might come down, mightn't mm. it? I mean, yeah. I'm not saying this is right, but I'm just mm. it was just something I, put, it... I wondered about.
0: Yeah, I mean, basically, the Kennel Club run the most prestigious dog show in the world, I would say they've got a a great platform and a fair amount of clout in the dog world that they could actually say, if you want to be the, you know, if you want to be a breeder of the best dogs in the world, and if you want people to know, then you've got to abide by certain standards. I would say they've got a great platform to enforce that and, you know, and, and to help dogs not have to go through this and suffer. Um, I, 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 I
3: have to say at that point, when you explain that to me, I don't get it. I really don't get it now. No, no. And, and, and they say on their site, we are the UK's largest organisation dedicated to protecting and promoting the health and welfare of all dogs. Yet they still continue to register litters of puppies from dogs not health checked. Yeah, yeah.
0: Okay, so if, you know, some breeders aren't embracing, and again, I, I, I you know, I really want to say there are brilliant breeders out there. Yeah,
3: there are.
0: And... As in any walk of life, there are breeders. I wouldn't call them the, the, the bad breeders. I wouldn't even class them as breeders. Um, they're just business people who happen to make, be making their money from dogs. You know, mm. that's how I would think of it. Um, and I don't, I you know, the the good breeders, yep, great, love them. But I really dislike people who are, in it really, for me, the problem is if you love the money more than the puppies you're producing or the dog dogs who are living with you, that's the problem. You know, you've really got to put the dog first. That's, to me, where the issue is. But so if, if some breeders, and again, I wouldn't read the customer's breeders, but if some breeders are cashing in and not doing these tests, and if if the authorities, if well, if the kennel club won't enforce it, OK, we're in a situation now where there is this problem. So you've come up with a really great suggestion of how we could deal with this. So what? how would you
3: like to see it dealt with? So what? we thought was um, if we had a breeding dog register, so every dog that was being bred with was on this register and for it to be on this register, it had to have the health tests appropriate for that breed. So not all Mm -hmm. dogs are susceptible to elbow or hip dysplasia, but the ones that would be would have to have had the tests and there would be some kind of system that showed um, what was acceptable to be bred from and what wasn't and so that would be one part of it but mm-hmm. the problem with that is it would have to somehow have to be enforced so the health checks would have to be done and all that sort of thing and that always takes money and the government has mm-hmm. no money the government has no money for uh this kind of thing so what we thought was if we reintroduced the annual dog license so you anyone mm-hmm. that's got a dog we love dogs if we pay just a, like £19 a year for our dog, mm-hmm. it would generate so much money, it would generate millions of pounds, which would cover uh, welfare inspectors in every local authority and the running of this register, which would mean that all the the, the, the puppy farms could be inspected or the health checks could be done. It, it would just cover the whole welfare system. It's yeah. getting money into yeah. it, hopefully.
0: Yeah, I think that's a great idea. and. I mean, the counter argument that some people would make is, "I can't afford nineteen pounds a. Year. Well, then, if you're saying, if you're genuinely saying you can't afford nineteen pounds a year, I would actually question whether you can afford to have a dog at all. Mm. It's expensive
3: to have a dog, isn't it? it? It it does cost you money. Yeah, and and of course there will be exceptions, you know, such as guide dogs, etc. There's got, there's got to be exceptions, but the majority of the people of people that have got dogs, like you and me, yeah. should and could afford that 19 pounds it's, it's less
0: than 50p a week I think <laughs> <Is> yeah <it? laughs> yeah I mean you you meant well i I'm not, I'm, I think it is yes <laughs> yeah but I mean you mentioned guide dogs exempted I that's sounds great because guide dogs keep such a detailed and extensive database of their own dogs mm. and obviously it costs them so much to train their dogs you know, apart from the the loving dogs and, and them wanting to be wanting them to be healthy it costs them so much to train a the dog they want as many working years out of that dog as they can get so their dogs are so carefully bred from mm. um, it, it's, you know, it, it's not an issue for them um, in amazing
3: conditions as well they're all you know, yes. they're, it's, they're beautifully kept.
0: Yes. Yeah. When you see, I mean, I'm drifting away from the subject, but when you see how guide dogs are bred, it just made me, I mean, it made me so happy for the guide dogs, but so sad that not every dog gets that start in life because they do get their best Mm -hmm. start. Even before they're conceived, they're being planned for and thought about. It's it's amazing. That's the
3: standard that all dogs should go up to, isn't that?
0: Yeah, Definitely. Definitely. So I, I think that's a really good idea. So bring bring the dog licence back and that would, would fund the, the enforcement of these standards and, and the tests. I think that would be really good. I think that's, I can't see a, a, a counter argument that would make me think, no, actually, that's not a good idea. I think that, that's good. And
3: the other stream of funding that we thought was that if everybody, so anyone that decided to breed their dog, they apply for a breeding licence, And it could be Hmm. tiered. So if you just, if it's like little Joe next door that just wants to breed her Labrador, she gets it checked, gets it on the register, gets a license, health checked, and everything. And she would pay like a little small sub. But if it's like one of these puppy farms that's got like 60 breeding dogs, they would pay a a much larger license. So it's like scaled up and down to the number of litters and all that money, because it's only a very small proportion of, of, of. of uh, breeders have a license, mm. and if 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 every breeder had a license, well, now we've got puppies that are microchipped. If if yes. that the, these little puppies that are left or end up in a care, in their care homes, in the rescue homes, they can all trace yeah. back to where they yes. came from and their parents.
0: Yeah, and 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 then we've got to look at the the how we deal with people you know who are found to be breeding without using the microchipping system. And that's a whole other mm-hmm. thing. But, you know, that's, that should be dealt with as well. Because, yeah, we do need traceability. We do sure. need accountability. And that's what those um, welfare
3: inspectors would be able to enforce. Yeah. If we've got the money for the welfare inspectors, inspectors they're the ones that be able to... So we get microchipping, we will get registration, we get licensing, and just tidy it all up. Yeah. It sounds
0: great. It does it sound great.
3: great. But- <laughs> 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 I, well...
0: Now, again, it's difficult to bring change about, and so you've got the solution. How There is a petition, isn't there? So if people are listening to this and going, yeah, this sounds good to me as well, they can
3: support you, can't they? Yeah, we've got a, um, a petition to government. So um, I had a chat with my MP last week. He met Button, and she was amazing with him, and they had a photo <laughs> shoot and everything, and he's really supportive of it. Um, Great. So we've got a petition to government, it's on our Facebook page, which is at Pause Against ED. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's called Funding for a Breeding Dog Register and Welfare Inspectors.
0: Great. I will put those links onto the Facebook page and the uh, the petition, mm-hmm. and people can really get behind this. Oh, and also, if they do get behind it, which we'd, we'd love them to, there's, there's a hashtag as well you want them to use, isn't there? Yeah, we, we're going to use hashtag Pause Against ED. Great. So if, if everybody uses that, and gets behind this. And we've seen with so many petitions recently, you know, if when people back them, when it's a, a cause that strikes their heart and they think, no, I'd... This does make sense to me. I do want this to happen. And they get behind it. And particularly with social media, it, it empowers us all and, and links us all up and we can get together. And changes can happen. If you think it doesn't make a difference, you're wrong, it does. And signing that petition, making a stand, sharing the petition,
3: it does help, doesn't it? It really does. It, it, there's quite a few little little laws or regulations that have been put in place that are really helping dogs. and And this is just another thing that can kind of, help them more and yeah it is people power (laughs) yes on behalf of the dogs because the dogs can't do it for themselves that's what breaks my heart with button is that this is humans that have done this humans we've done this we've got we've we're breeding these dogs that have got these such severe illnesses they're passing on to other dogs you know on onto their yes it shouldn't be happening but we're doing it as humans so we as humans need to stop and, and and like stop it we've got to yes yeah definitely definitely
0: and as you say they, the dogs can't sort of say excuse me I'd like to be healthier can you help me can you do something so we've got to do it for them absolutely yeah. absolutely agree is there anything
3: else that you'd like to say Annie that we haven't had a chance to say yet only that I really appreciate that you're taking the time to talk to me and, and help me spread the word really and and, and, and i be so appreciative if people can can sign the Press release. I know it's not perfect what I suggest, but even if we get it talked about and and get it out there, it's going to get people thinking. And, And the more people that do ask about these health tests, the more that people are going to have to do them if they're going to breed their dogs.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I've walked away from a breeder who said, Oh, you don't need health tests, you can look at them, look, they look healthy. You do need health tests. We I didn't that one. I didn't even argue with because you think what's the point? I'm just wasting my breath. I'm banging my head against a brick wall with you. I just so I just walked away and mm-hmm. didn't buy from her and we went and found a breeder that did do all the health tests. And that, you know, people who are looking for a puppy have so much power in their hands to do good for dogs don't buy from the person who says, oh, I haven't had them health tested, I don't need to, it doesn't matter, I can tell they're health, healthy. You can't tell they're healthy. And some of these conditions won't affect them till much, much later on. And again, if the suffering of your dog and dogs in general isn't enough to persuade you, then it's going to hit you in the wallet. People, you know, we do so many consumer tests and research. We go and research, oh, I want to a washing machine. I'll go and look it up. I'll see which one's the best one. A car, I'll go and read the magazine. See which one's going to give me the less, which one's going to be reliable. But we need to do that for our dogs. And it's not like the dogs aren't reliable. As you say, we have bred them like that and we need to do research, whether we're adopting or buying. We need to do research and we need to do the best for the dogs. We do.
3: Absolutely. I totally agree with you. But what we have to understand is the heart comes into this. The yes. heart doesn't come into buying a car. Well, it maybe does for some people, but. Majority, <laughs> and it doesn't come into a washing machine. But the heart completely takes over when you see a little puppy and its eyes, and you just want to mend it. If you see it, it's broken yes. at the time. You want it and you want to fix it. That's yeah. that's the problem with trying to be. It, we've got to educate everybody. Everybody's got to learn about it, but it can't just be purely that, that, that it's got to be stopped at source, hasn't it? it because yes. the heart yeah.
0: takes over yeah oh yes it's very difficult to sort of I mean it's been drummed and drummed and drummed into me that you know you, you don't I mean I was <laughs> I, I won't go into the details but we were somewhere and I actually there was a dog running loose on the road and I sort of as I have to and my daughter was with no my mum was with me and I and I was like oh we have to try and get this dog home and it ran back into I'm not even going to say where it ran back into but it was a it was a place that I followed it into just to make sure it was okay and there were lots and lots of very very similar dogs running around and it wasn't till I drove away and I thought oh my goodness that was a puppy farm wasn't it and they it's it, the to be fair the dogs running loose and around looked in nice condition but they were all very very similar and you know 20 or 30 dogs all looked very similar and they struck me because they looked very lo- like our dog like mischief and I thought oh they were you know they all had a lot of a lot of Pomeranian influence and I was, and I suddenly thought oh my goodness, that was a puppy farm. Now I I have had it drummed into me. You don't buy, you're not saving them if you buy from a puppy farm, but it's, it's very difficult when you go and see a dog that's in a, in a, the wrong mm. environment. You
3: want to save them, don't yeah, you? Yeah, you do. And that's what, what, what people are up against, you, you know? Oh. It, so that's, that's why it's so important. We've got to kind of try and tidy it up at a source rather than expect the, the general public to not go with their hearts.
0: Yeah, definitely. Well, Listen, Annie. That my I, my hat is off to you because I really admire people who see a problem and think I'm going to do something about it. Because it would have been very easy to sit at home and you know have a cry about button and and think, oh, this is dreadful. But you've actually done something. You've addressed it, and that's I really, really admire that. That's to me. I say this a lot, but that's how the world turns. If we all fight the the battles that are given to us and that inspire us that's how we how the world changes and you can make a difference just one person because you talk to other people that are like-minded and you come
3: together but it starts with that one person so well done oh thank you thank you but it's button that inspires me and it it is the fact that every morning i have to give her painkillers and she sits there waiting for them that drives me on because it's just not right
0: it's not right is it i think all of that is quite shocking If you'd like to support Button and dogs like her who are affected by the decisions we humans make, which dogs bear the consequences of, please do visit the Pause Against ED Facebook page where you'll find the information you need. And those links are also in the show notes for this episode at dogcastradio.com. Newfoundlands make great lifeguards, and you can hear about their ability, agility, and sheer power in the water in episode 110 of Dogcast Radio. You're listening to Dogcast Radio on www.dogcastradio.com. Trevor Jones is the director and CEO of the Nebraska State Historical Society. And Nebraska is where the War Dog Program was based. So, first of all, I asked Trevor to tell me what the War Dog Program was.
1: When the United States entered World War II, they had the idea that dogs could help with the war effort and they could save um, soldiers and let them do other things. But there was one fundamental problem with that is the United States military had absolutely no dogs whatsoever. We had no war, no dog training program, no military dogs, no history of military dogs. Other countries um, such as England had, but never the United States. So what they did, their response to this was they asked the American people to donate their pets to the war effort. And they said, if you've got a dog and it, you know, weighs more than 50 pounds and is of a certain height, um, please donate that dog to the military and we will train it and uh, it can serve its, your country. And so that was the Dogs for Defense program. And people did this by the thousands and they shipped their dogs in crates, usually by railroad. And they sh- and one of the, the primary dog training centers was in Western Nebraska at a place called Fort Robinson. And they trained tens of thousands of dogs there and then they served in every theater of the war they served in europe they served in the pacific they served domestically and that was was how they did it and it's never been done before or since that was the the one time that they they did this and the Truly, truly crazy thing about it is at the end of the war, if your dog survived the war, that they would brought the dogs back to western Nebraska to Fort Robinson and they detrained them to become pets again. And so they put them through this, this week's long training course and they trained them to be pets and then at government expense they shipped them back to you. So if you were if you had donated your dog in say 1942 and 1945, if you were lucky, your dog would come back and and be returned to you. And so that's the the story of the war dog training program, so what we did was um, told that story as a children's book, and we used a true story about a boy named Sid who gave up his dog in uh, to the war effort and a true uh, an actual dog named Major. Um, yeah. who served in the War Dog Program. And then we told that as a children's book from Major's perspective. So it's the dog telling the story, what his experience is like instead of a, a historian like me telling the story about <laughs> what it was like to to do the War Dog Program. So it's it's a great... Um, story. It's one that most people have never heard of, but, and the reason I really wanted to do it as a a children's book is because we talk about things, about stories, about sacrifice, what it means to give up for something larger than yourself about what it means to love your country. Um, But those are pretty abstract concepts. And I think they're really tough for adults a lot of times to figure out, but they're really difficult for kids. But if you frame that as would you give up your pet, to help your country that makes it very, very concrete and meaningful for people.
0: Yes. Yeah. Because I mean, I had heard about it before, but and I always think, gosh, I don't know. I don't, I don't, I don't think I would, but I don't, you know, it depends what to say, but no, I don't think I would. I think I'd be sort of in the basement with the dog going, no, you're not taking my dog. And that's not a very uh, patriotic response, but um, I guess we're in very different times now, but it, it is a big, big ask, isn't it? To say, you know, give us your dog. I mean, that's, that is a. That, they're a family member, and I assume they were. A lot of them were then. Um, that's a big ask, and I'm amazed that so many people
2: did it.
1: They did, but I, I. And I do think that we live in different times. I think pets have a different relationship to us now, in the main, in terms of how yes. we think about animals. But it wasn't easy then. Uh, the records are full for Fort Robinson of people writing letters to the fort inquiring about their dog how's my Aww. dog doing he really likes this is he are you making sure that he's getting that and they get so many letters in the early days that actually the the officers at the fort have to tell the clerks to please stop responding to people individually and they come up with like a basically a form letter and so it it does people did care and certainly for sid um and he's he's this the person in the story who the actual person and Sid's still living. I interviewed him as part of this project. And when Sid was five, he gave up his dog and we, we tell the story in the book and their illustrations that show how that happened. And for Sid, that was sort of the defining moment of his childhood was giving up this dog. And he remembers that, Over, you know, I think it's 77, 78 years ago, he remembers it like it was yesterday. Mm -hmm. Um, And so it was very traumatic for him. And he actually ended up when he grew up, he enlisted in the military, and he was a career officer. I mean, he spent his entire career in the military, and he traces that back to giving up his dog because he felt like if his dog had sacrificed for his country, he needed to do the same. So it it wasn't, I think it would be different today, but it wasn't easy then. And I think that's one of the reasons that the, the U.S. military worked so hard to get these animals back to people at the end of the war. They did not think of the dogs as like a tank or a or a plane, something that would be discarded once you were done with it, they recognized that the American people had given up their pets and that it mattered. And so they worked really hard. And, and the, the letters in the file show, you know, because people moved around during the war for wartime jobs, all kinds of reasons, and they spent a lot of time trying to track people down to get these pets back to them
0: yeah yeah that's amazing and as you say it was different times so that's lovely to know that they did appreciate that bond and worked so hard because we hear you know various stories about working dogs now and in the main working dogs are very well cared for but we still hear the occasional story don't we um so it's lovely that even then they valued them and I think maybe if they were working with them you have a different appreciation, don't you? Because it's it's sort of your partner. It's not just your your dog. If if you can just you know, do you mean it's a different appreciation? It's your life can, can can depend on your dog, can't it? In those situations,
1: a- absolutely. And and World War Two, at least in the United States, this is the the genesis. This is the origin of modern dog training. And so service dogs, military dogs today all come out of a technical manual that they put together in 1943 at, at Fort Robinson. And so the principles of dog training that they, they started to use in the Dogs for Defense program are the principles of dog training today. And of course, dog training has been improved dramatically since that time, but they operated on the idea that um, dogs would not be trained from a principle of fear that so that was one of the things from world war II is that the wow. dog needed to be a partner to be effective the dog needed it needed to be a partnership and if the dog was afraid that that was not going to work and so that was one of the core principles and that's you know a, a core principle of dog training today oh, yes, and definitely. and so they they understood that and in the early days of the war they they made some mistakes um where there was a you know there was a guy who wanted to start a dog training program and he wanted to break the dog and then rebuild the dog and it was mm-hmm. a disaster and it didn't happen in Nebraska it happened um, on the East Coast and so the they they adapted and they were like well that does not work and so we will not operate for that so by the end of the war they had this technical manual and that manual became sort of the basis for military training of, of dogs which became the basis for service dogs and and all the rest and a lot and you'll see. Um, some of the stuff come out of World War II in terms of training dogs for the visually impaired and things. A lot of the people that were dog trainers for the Dogs for Defense program ended up doing that in the post-war years. So one of the stories in the book that I wanted to tell Um, it's, it's super historically accurate. Nobody cares, but me, but the images, uh, in there are all based on historical images and the people are Mm -hmm. that are featured are all real people. And there's a a woman that shows up at the end of the book who detrains major so he can go back home. And the official U S military records say that there were no female dog trainers during world war II, that this was Mm -hmm. a male profession, but we had records in our file with a woman named Carol Rover and she um, detrained dogs at Fort Robinson in 1945, and we have a picture of her in her dog training gear, and we have her orders that assign her as dog training position, and I felt it was really important to put her in the book to correct that record, because she was there, and this is what she did, and in the post-war years, she's, she's since passed on, but in the post-war years, one of the things that she did was use those techniques to train dogs for the visually impaired. She did that for decades, and wow. so that comes directly out of World War II, um, those techniques that that she learned as as being a member of the military. But I wanted Carol to be part of that story because she'd been written out of the historical narrative, and I thought it was time that she'd get written back in.
0: Yes. Well, thank you. That was... <laughs> <laughs> and that's brilliant i mean and that's one of the lovely things that it's it's a lovely story and it pulls you in and particularly as a dog person it pulls you in and you're sort of oh no major what will happen you know Um, and no spoilers um so it does pull you in and it is very much from major's point of view as you say isn't it he he it's his story and it's his um perception of the world
1: we did a lot of research about how dogs behave and how dogs think and how dogs see the world and so in the book, Ming Hai did the illustrations. Wonderful illustrations in the book, and so she did a great job of showing Major's um, smelly world. Because dogs—if you—if you have a dog, if you've ever had a dog, you know that that smell is the dog's most important sense. The way that we think about—you know—that we rely on sight. A dog is relying on its nose. And and you know part of the reason that your dog wants to sniff the same spot every time you go for a walk is that's really how they tell time, is they're really the, the, the strength of a smell lets them know how much time has elapsed. And so we really wanted to show that in the story. We, a lot of the illustrations are from a dog's point of view. You're seeing a lot of feet like dogs do. <laughs> uh, so we wanted that. And other things like Major gets uh, sent to Europe, so he has to take a boat. And dogs get seasick. And so we wanted to show all the dogs being absolutely objectively miserable and seasick uh on the on the trip and so all of those things are are from major's perspective because that's how a you know a dog sees the world through through smell and so we wanted that and and hearing to be the the big things that you got out of that book and then cite the, sort of the last thing because uh, yeah. that's the way that dogs dogs view things yeah yeah
0: it's lovely to hear you say as well that they these dogs that they had to rely on, they learned that they had to treat them, train them in a positive way. Because I mean, nowadays you still hear now, we know the science tells us, you know, the positive, the kind ways, you can't have hundred percent positive, but the kinder ways work. And yet you still hear people say, oh no, it doesn't work. And it doesn't work quickly enough. And, you know, but this was training that was vital. So to hear that it was positive is is wonderful, isn't it?
1: Yeah. And I think they, they learned a lot through through that process and certainly no, you know, one of the other things that they understood is that dogs needed to bond with their handlers. Um, and so, you know, they really trained it so that the, the dog was only going to be touched by one person and that would be the handler. That's how they, they did it. So when they had to detrain them at the end of the war to be pets again, that's one of the things, habits they had to change, yes. uh, was allow the dog to be petted by other people. And the book shows that, um, you know, really training other people to touch the dog. And so, but one of the things i think they also had this idea that you could just pass dogs off to to other people um and that's not the not not the way it, it worked and so what ended up happened once they started sending dogs out in combat they hadn't originally intended that the the dog trainers would go into combat with them mm-hmm. and then they ended up shipping they realized that that's the way it had to be and so they ended up shipping entire units of of dog handlers um, and these were mostly men who had not really been trained for combat. Uh, So this was a real adjustment. I mean, some of the people at Fort Robinson in the early days Uh, They set all this stuff up very quickly, and it's sort of amazing to look at what they're ordering. You know, they're ordering 6,000 leashes, you know, uh, 10,000 dog houses, uh, just like, you know, requisition orders. And a lot of the people that got got shipped out there to be dog trainers, some of them hadn't even had basic training. They just, um, you know, they got drafted or they enlisted, and somebody asked them, hey, do you know anything about dogs? And maybe they show dogs or maybe they trained hunting dogs or something. And the next thing they knew they were on a train to, rural western nebraska and they <laughs> yes. were and they were training dogs so it's and then the next thing they knew they were in europe or and they were in the pacific and they were in combat yeah. so it wasn't um you know it wasn't sometimes as organized as as you would have thought but the scale of it was was massive and i think about that with fort robinson we have these pictures that show these entire hills just full of dog houses with just you know thousands of dogs and i can't imagine what the noise must have been like mm. when all of those dogs were barking at once it's it's sort of astounding
0: yeah yeah it must be and so can people come and come and visit fort robinson today
1: Absolutely, that's one yeah. of the historic sites that History of Nebraska, my organization, operates. And so you can see the we we mow the paths of the dog runs. You can see where all of this the training areas were, where the dog houses were. We have a museum there, and you can see um, dog houses uh, from World War II and uniforms worn by people and and uh, the the tags the dogs had around their neck. All of oh. those things are are still there. And we have uh, you know one of the great things is we have uh, hundreds. of of, of photos if not thousands of photos in our collection of this and then um some of my predecessors were wonderful and they did interviews with pretty much anybody who had served in the military who ever passed through and that's how we know a lot of the story so that's how we know about carol uh who de- detrained dogs is somebody did an interview with her when she visited once and that's how we know about Sid and major is that um is sid uh wrote us a letter sometime in the in the 1980s and told us the story about giving up his dog when he was a boy and so when i started getting interested in this project and i said i'm going to do a children's book i thought i wonder if that guy's still alive and so i did a little google searching and i came up with a bunch of he'd moved a few times so i came up with a a bunch of possible sid moores and i just started um cold calling them until i found the one wow. and i said hey are, are you the sid moore who gave up his dog uh in uh north dakota uh when he was five and he was like yeah why <laughs> I'm like, <laughs> yeah what's it to you so, yeah so that's how that's how that this uh the story came about
0: why wow. i was going to ask you had you which came first the idea for the book or the you know was it inspired by him had you written before
1: um i've written a lot of things before i've written some some graphic novels some and uh, a lot of you know uh, standard history professional history but i really wanted to do this as a children's book because i felt like this is a a lesser known story that really applies to kids these ideas of patriotism and sacrifice are, are a way to get at something that really matters um in, in a way that's not, you know, too heavy handed. And, yeah. and, and I wanted it to be good history. And so all the images, the Ming's wonderful illustrations are all based on historic um, photos and, and as historically accurate as we could make it. I wanted there to be real people, but I also wanted to be able to to tell the story in a different way so that, that it was the dog telling the story. And so um, yeah, it was my first children's book um, to do, and it was it was great fun for that reason.
0: Yeah, have you sold the film rights yet?
1: <laughs> no, but that would that would be great fun. It, this is not a story that that most people um, in the United States know about, and most people no. have not not heard this story about about world war ii and this idea of of sacrifice uh and patriotism though it was a big deal at the time i mean yeah yeah in our in our collection there are even songs written about dogs for defense patriotic songs that they wrote Aww. uh they got a lot of film stars um to uh uh to donate their dogs and and uh and be uh, featured in in things so there's a uh Uh, movie actress uh, Greer Garson uh, who was a uh, an actress and she donated her two standard poodles to the war effort that were amazingly well trained and they went on basically USO tours with these dogs to to um, get people to donate so at the time you know during World War II this was a a big deal but it's yeah. been forgotten.
0: Yes. Yeah. I mean, that was a serious question. I wasn't being flippant. You know, have you sold the film? Because here, <laughs> listening, I was saying yes, yes, this would make a jolly good film. This would be, amazing. and I tell you what, everybody would be crying as they came out, you which know, is for for one reason or another. We've no point. But yeah, you know, dogs touch hearts, don't they? So it's you know it would be. I think that would be. Yeah, you should start start phoning Paramount. You, know? <laughs> Could you would you like to
1: read my book? Absolutely. <laughs> Definitely. Do you have dogs? I don't have a dog right now, but I grew up with, with dogs, um, a whole series of dogs. So I know dogs well. Um, and, and so, yeah, absolutely. This, this story, uh, hits close to home, uh, for, for that reason. Um, you know, I, I had a lot of Huskies growing up and, and, uh, uh, those are willful dogs, uh, so I can't imagine. <laughs> and and they did have a uh, uh, at at Fort Robinson, they they had a sled dog training program as well. And so oh. there were sled dogs, um, and they they trained sled dogs, and that was a separate encampment just for sled dogs. And actually, um, they ended up using them for mostly search and rescue in the United States. But during the battle of the bulge in the winter of 1944, the United States was, was really in in trouble uh, for a while there and fighting in winter conditions. And they actually got all of these sled dogs ready. And their plan was that they were going to airdrop them uh, into Germany and to fight in the battle of the bulge and, um, and bring in supplies. And uh, by the time they, they had them, actually ready to launch Uh, the tides of war had changed and and they no longer needed them, but they, they were ready to go. So they had some crazy schemes in the, in the early days of world war two about what dogs could do and what dogs could not do. And some of that's been sort of borne out in, in what dogs can do today that they couldn't do then. Um, One of the things that they wanted dogs to do was detect landmines. Mm. And so they, they tried to by smell and they were going to detect landmines and they did it under test conditions in the United States and it worked quite well. But then when they brought the dogs to Italy to detect landmines, they discovered that, um, you know, landmines are really, close to the front and they're not just landmines in a field they're all kinds of smelly things um you know uh dead horses uh dead people um shell fragments and the dogs just could not do well uh with sorting that out but if you think about what dogs can do today in terms of um, smelling out diseases or chemical compounds or all kinds of things i mean they were you know they were on the right track they just didn't quite have it nailed um but their faith in dogs was was amazing um and so they designed dog gas masks during world war ii they had dog parachutes and they actually uh paratrooped them in uh during uh, not i've never been able to confirm this for american dogs but uh English dogs, um, parachuted in during D-Day, uh, the wow. British brought in dogs and parachuted them out and they served on the first days of, of D-Day and in the invasion of France. So, wow. um, so th- they, they had boundless faith in these animals and that faith was for the most part, very much rewarded.
0: Mm-hmm. Excellent. Excellent. And, um, what kind of, you, you've talked a bit about the, the sort of the jobs that they, but what, can you tell us a bit more about the jobs that these dogs actually did?
1: So they trained them for different things. So one of the core things they had for dogs that stayed in the United States was um, guard dogs. And so they were in the early days, they were very concerned about sabotage of military installations um, and of Japanese invasion. And then by the end of the war, that was no longer a concern, but that was, that was early. So they had a lot of guard dogs that would patrol, um, you know, munitions, factories, places like that, and they would train them for that. they also had the mind detecting dogs that I mentioned. They trained dogs to carry bandages uh, for field hospitals and first aid stations. They were supposed to be um, casualty dogs. They were supposed to go um, to people uh they They trained messenger dogs so that dogs could carry messages from one part of the uh, battlefield to another and that was a fairly effective um, thing, especially early in the war um, but where dogs really showed their greatest value during world war ii was as as what they called a scout dog so if you were sending out a patrol the dog would go out on that patrol and would detect um ambushes um so the dog sense of smell is wonderful and so the dog would basically point um if it detected um an ambush or something suspicious up ahead and this was effective it was effective in in europe but where it was most effective for the united states was in the pacific in jungle conditions where it was very easy to ambush soldiers and there are um lots of of accounts of dogs saving hundreds of lives by detecting ambushes um so that they knew that somebody was up ahead and so that they would stop or they would you know send out scouts or they would call in artillery um and they would would save lives that way. And so they were in huge demand and actually the, they really didn't have enough dogs to meet the demand uh, especially in the Pacific for, for that function. So um, they, they did that. They were also, they had sled dogs that only served in the United States, but they, um, they did uh, search and rescue missions, especially in, in mountainous areas of the United States. If a plane crashed, they went to go rescue people.
0: Yeah. Excellent. I mean, they they helped, helped us so much, didn't they? And the water. It was just it was amazing. I know I did, there's amazing stories. When you start looking into it, it just it's it, it's even more. You know, touches your heart so much that dogs were so amazing and, and at such risk. And then to go from that sort of quite high pressure, I don't know how much the dogs would have picked up on the pressure, but that was a high, quite a high pressure um, role. How well did they adapt back to life as a pet?
1: It depends on the dog. Um, in, in a lot of ways, I think it's very clear that just like service members had trouble adjusting to civilian life after the war. Um, and certainly after World War II, this was not something that was talked about that much for people, frankly. Yes. And we're, we're much more open to talking about post-traumatic stress guess, yes. disorder than today than, than they ever were. But just like soldiers had a trouble adjusting dogs did too and and it's very clear from the the writings that people uh that the even the military sent with your your pet when it came back to you that they expected there to be a time of adjustment to 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 this new life and some dogs and this is the sad part is that you know some dogs couldn't be detrained and they did have to destroy some dogs because they could not return um, to civilian life. And, and they clearly worked hard. I mean, I have to say that it is absolutely clear from the records is they, they tried so hard to get these dogs um, back to the people that had donated and they felt a a duty to, to return these dogs to the pet owners, but not every dog could be safely returned. And so, some dogs, especially dogs that had been trained for, um, you know, attacking roles that had been uh, trained to be aggressive. Mm -hmm. uh, They had a hard time getting that out of them again. And some of those dogs had to be destroyed. So it's not a happy ending for, for all the dogs and dogs were killed in combat. Multiple dogs were killed in combat Mm -hmm. Uh, died. Dogs died of accidents. Dogs died of disease. Um, You know, there was, there was distemper um, that, that killed dogs. So you have all, you know, there was, there was sacrifice. So, um, you know, and and it's not given it away because it is a children's It's major, a soldier dog, and it's designed for kids and major comes, comes home happily and major did come home happily and he, (laughs) he survived the war and, and that's, you know, but not every dog did. And, and, um, and that, that's true. That's true as well, but Mm -hmm. they did try really hard to get those dogs back to their original owners. Yes.
0: Yeah. Well, if ever we discover time travel, we can send some, some modern trainers back, modern behaviours back and help save them. That's, what I, that's my new aim. <laughs> um, thank you. It's been really, really fascinating. Where can people find out more online about the book or, and the um, museum?
1: Sure. If you're um, looking to purchase Major a Soldier Dog, you can go to our website, historynebraska.gov slash books, and you can find it there. You can also find on our website pictures of the original uh, Fort Robinson War Dog training camp. We've got, we've got, Images We've got, um, things from, from that as well. Um, you can learn how to visit Fort Robinson if you're ever in (laughs) in the Western part of Nebraska. Uh, but if you, uh, also that the book is available on Amazon, it's available from, uh, Barnes and Noble, um, booksellers in the United States, um, carry it as well and so you can find it there or you can find it on our website but the the um the war dog training program we've also got loads of photos of so you want to know what it actually looked like um to see thousands of dog houses um you know we've got pictures of that
0: next month as we honor the memory of those who gave their lives in war let's also honor the animals who played such vital roles in keeping them as safe as possible And let's also think of those poor owners concerned for their beloved dogs so far away in such danger. Thanks to Trevor for sharing his expertise with me. We have all the links on the DogCast Radio website for you to find out more about the War Dog Project and to buy Major a Soldier Dog. MRI scans have given insights into dogs' emotional and mental processes. You can hear our fascinating interview with Dr Gregory Burns on this subject in episode one hundred and ninety. Dogcast Radio. We're all aware that the world is going through extremely unusual and tough times currently. The Mayhew teamed up with Jason Fleming and Philippa Perry to make a radio advert to help raise £7,500 to help vulnerable people and their pets stay together during the pandemic. Here's Jason.
2: Hi guys,
0: how are you all? Yep, good. Well, as good as we can be <laughs> in lockdown oh, no, it's or, or strange, whatever. We're... isn't it? Yes. Yeah, oh my goodness. I can't keep up with the rules. I don't know what state we're in at the moment, but I'm staying home. Oh, no, so. <laughs> we've done all this. We
2: did it all summer. Then you said it would all be fine and now we can all
0: run around with our dogs. But no. No. It's changed again. No. But saying that, run around with our dogs, the important thing is we've got our dogs with us, so we're lucky.
2: I know, mate. And to be really honest, I've got... Um, a rescue dog from Romania, which came basically this time last year. I've always got rescue dogs, I've always rescued dogs, but she, Indiana, was particularly difficult, and I was like, oh, man. <laughs> and then when lockdown happened, you know, week after week of lockdown and me being home and all being around the dog together, just yesterday I took her out for a walk and I was like, it's so great, I don't even look for her when she runs off, it's just so... It's so, like, it's such a relief to, to have her turn around. And I yes. think, to be fair, lockdown really helped that.
0: Yes. There have been advantages. I mean, it's, it's an awful situation. I wouldn't have wished for COVID, obviously. <clears throat> but you have to find the positive and amongst all the negative, don't you? So there have been advantages of lockdown.
2: hundred percent. I would just hundred percent agree with you. I mean, for me, because I'm a workaholic and I was brought up, in, you know, with that kind of work ethic that one of the worst One of those guilt things that I was instilled in me when I was young was you've got to go graph, and so I've always done that. And being forced to work and told that everyone else is doing the same was actually incredible for me. It's a brilliant thing for me.
0: Yes, yeah, okay. Now, having said that, so you know, I imagine there's many people who have found the benefits of lockdown, but it has been. A Difficult time, and one of the people for whom it's been difficult are oh, all the charities, isn't it? So, the Mayhew, yeah, yeah. you know, is aware of that, and they've had a tough time, haven't they?
2: They have had some bad, because we had a load of things for the Mayhew that were planned over the summer, including, you know, group dog walks, you know, sponsored group walks, etc., and all of those get um, cancelled to a degree or become remote, which is not nearly as effective. So, I don't know how any of them have done it, I
0: really don't no. I feel for them. Yes, awful. They really need our support, and to that end, they are—they've—they've they've run a, a radio advert, which I know you—you you took part in, didn't you?
2: Yeah, I think I did the voiceover for that.
0: Yeah, yeah, excellent, excellent. So, and they're running a campaign called "A Life Shared" can be a life saved. Now, what's the aim with this, Jason?
2: Basically, the messages are that the Mayhew is a lifeline for vulnerable pet owners. Even though it's been horrendous for the animals, there are people who are really struggling. Yes. Looking after their dogs, you know, and looking after their animals. And um, going through a crisis, you know, whether it's financial or with a family, yeah, um, it's really difficult when you've got that extra responsibility and it is a massive responsibility to have a pet. And sometimes that can just add to the burden of stress and trouble that on someone's shoulders. So what I love about the Mayhew is the fact that obviously they do do a lot, you know, for the animal welfare, but it's also, it's that thing about if you think that there's an owner who's struggling to cope and you know, it, it, especially during Lockdown. I could see. I felt really bad. People on the street, you know, older yeah. um, members of my community, who were walking on the, the, the pavements, masked with their dog, and you can see there's a level of anxiety, which is which has actually been overcome by the by the the, 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 the knowledge that their that pets desperately need of exercise and um, outside stimulus, and it's just a it's it, for a
0: lot yeah. Of people. Yeah, yeah. I mean, thank goodness for our dogs, though, because we—I'm going through lockdown with a dog. I know
2: you've—you've you've got your dog,
0: and—and they—they do make life bearable, don't they?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think you know there was a survey, I think, by the major that said eighty-five percent of Londoners or city dwellers believe that spending time with an animal has got a positive impact on their mental health, and seventy-nine percent um, believe that much for companions and other human being, and you don't have to cook and argue with them as much as you do with your own family.
0: Yes. <laughs> Thank goodness. <laughs> yes, when your family upset you, you can go and sit with the dogs somewhere, can't you?
2: Um, oh, it's so nice. It's yeah. so nice. It makes such a difference. Yeah. But then on top of that, there's, been, there's definitely been that massive increase in lockdown, you know, lockdown pet ownership. I mean, you know, we'll only really understand and know the uh, ramifications of that as, as time goes on.
0: Yes, yeah, which, I mean, is lovely, wonderful that they take, you know, people taking dogs on, taking pets on, but, as you say, as time goes on and we get back to a normal or a new normal, we just hope those pets still have a good home, don't you?
2: Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, and there's so many dogs, as you know, there's so many dogs out there that need rescuing, you know, and it's really funny, I was walking down the road, um, walks down through Clasin the other day, my little man at my little area where, you know, it's lovely and, you know, we're right by the common and it's great for the dogs, blah, blah, blah. And I was walking down the road with my mutt on a lead and we met this dog and my mate said to me, he "said," and it was this sort of, it was a kind of rare version of an English bull terrier or a yeah. bull terrier yeah. and I was like that's unbelievable it's almost purple you know the way a Vizsla goes that almost purple colour yes. yeah. and I walked, I walked on and my mate the florist said to me he said do you know how much that dog cost and I was like no idea he said it was 10,000 oh. pounds
0: oh my goodness Jason that's ridiculous
2: isn't it 10,000 pounds for a rare breed British bulldog there's so many dogs tied you know chained up to posts that need loving and I was like mate I just can't see how that's justifiable but you know each to their own but you know I would implore anyone to consider a rescue dog because the benefits one you know the good you're doing but just the idea that when you turn that dog around the the pleasure you get from that experience and from seeing dog you know happy sleeping trusting is amazing it's amazing
0: Definitely. They're life changing. Uh, Thank goodness for dogs, I think. But I mean, that really puts things in context because the Mayhew is aiming to raise seven and a half thousand pounds. And I mean, they're saying that would either provide almost a thousand animals with vaccinations or cover the cost of running the animal ambulance for a year. Now, I mean, putting that in context, if somebody's got 10,000 to splash out on a dog, please send (coughs) something to the Mayhew because they, they need it, don't they?
2: I know that's, uh, that's incredible, isn't it? It really does put it in perspective. Yes. The idea of spending £10,000 on a puppy amazing. But yes, they made you need your help, and because they've suffered so badly, as all charities have, you know, obviously there are charities that um, help human beings live um, a happier life, uh, rescue uh, people in terrible situations. And, and I think, you know, with all of us, uh Charity work, or the, what the amount you can financially give. If you've got if you've got a pound to give, how yes. do you split that pound up? And all I'm saying is that the Mayhew deserves a couple of pence of that pound. You know, it doesn't, I, I understand that people, have got other things that they're more concerned about. I do too. You know, I'm much more concerned about refugees being stuck in Calais than I am about dogs being chained to fences in in, um, in, in South London. But it's still something I care and love. And yes. you know that you have to you have to somehow. Segment your emotional um, response to what 's happening, and I definitely think that makes you deserve our help
0: absolutely absolutely I mean I think that 's the thing. there are so many things going wrong at the moment, so many things to worry about, but yeah. as you say, give some of that worry, give some of that attention and and money. To the mayhem, yeah. because they do deserve it. And, you know, I think I if we all support the causes we care about, you know, the world turns. We don't all care about 100% about the same thing, but that's how the world turns. We care about Yeah, that, you're right. You know, and that's how it works.
2: You're absolutely right. And, you know, there's always going to be someone um, who will put their hand in their pocket and help someone else, and that's how it should be. They'll put their hand out behind them and pull up someone from behind them. And hopefully... Okay. That's what. That's the great thing about humanity, and you know, hopefully, that will continue, and we can keep caring about people and keep caring about animals.
0: Yeah, yeah. Now, I have to say, Jason, I'm I'm loving you at the moment. In um, two weeks to live, uh-huh. I, I hope other people are. But I mean, you're you're doing. You've you've done. So, you're having a rest at the moment, but you've done so much work. We can still enjoy you in things at the moment, can't we? Yeah.
2: No, I'm not resting. I'm the oh, only. Yeah. I mean, I can't quite, I can't quite work out how I've done it, but I've managed to do. I've done three movies and a TV show all the way through this year. Wow. So I'm, I'm still doing a job. I do a, a TV show called Pennyworth which is on... Um Amazon Prime. Yeah. Which is like a Batman prequel. And I've done a little film called Three Five Five, which I did just at the end of Lockdown with Celibie Cruz and Jessica Chastain, so that's coming out. Wow. And I did a little film called Boiling Point with Stephen Graham just before lockdown. So I did have the five months off in lockdown, but I'm back to work now. <laughs> COVID testing every day and back on set. So I'm oh, a happy wow. boy. There's, there's no rest. To be there, honest, it? to be honest. The COVID testing every day is a bit of a pain in the, in the uh, neck. If they told me to put a tiara and a ball gown on, I'd still do it in order to get out of the house.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And, and much respect to you. That, that's a brilliant attitude. Just, you know, it's we've just the price we've got to pay at the moment. You're a busy man. I will let you go. Thank you very much.
2: Bless you guys. Take it easy. Wasn't he
0: lovely? Thanks to Jason Fleming for taking the time to tell me more about the Mayhew. And thank goodness for charities who look after us and our animals. We, in turn, need to help them out. And the Mayhew is asking people to text MAYHEW, that's all capitals M-A-Y-H-E-W, to 70085 to donate five pounds, which will help them keep vulnerable people and their pets together. And remember, the £7,500 they're aiming to raise could either provide almost 1,000 animals with essential vaccinations or cover the cost of running their animal ambulance for the rest of the year. The COVID-19 pandemic has brought terrible times to some people and the fact that so many dogs have been adopted or bought has highlighted how valuable our dogs are to us, especially in times of trouble. If there's a dog in your life that's helping you through this pandemic, making you smile, just keeping you able to function, first of all I'm really pleased you've got that in your life but second of all do tell me about them and I'll share it with everybody else. with the ident Dog Cast Radio. That's all one word, Dog Cast Radio. By email, you can contact me on julie at dogcastradio.com. When contacting us by email, if you have the facilities, please record your questions or comments and send them to us as an audio file. That way, we can include them directly in our programme. We can accept most formats, for example, WAV MP3. All these methods of contacting us can be found on our website, which is www.dogcastradio.com. And as ever, the final word goes to Jenny.
3: What do you get if you cross an Australian dog and a beetle?
1: Dingo star.